Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. You may be seated. You can probably find a Bible in the pocket in front of you if you don't have yours with you this morning. But uh, we are going to be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 27 as we consider uh, this particular text, these three supernatural signs that God gives after the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to consider these. Uh, if you were with us for the Good Friday service, you know that Pastor Ryan uh, started us off looking at the veil, so I won't say much about that this morning. Um, but uh, we're going to continue more or less where, where Pastor Ryan left off on Good Friday. Just to focus you in specifically on the text, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and following say that Jesus died about the ninth hour which is about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, according to the Jewish reckoning of time. And uh, after he dies, picking it up in verse 51, it says, Behold, at at the moment of his death, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. After this, these three supernatural signs, Matthew then tells us that there are two uh, testimonies that are given. One by a centurion, and then he points to the women, which in this day and age, women hold the least significant position within society. They are not considered uh, by many respects, by the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment of the day, to be credible witnesses. And yet God speaking through his word is careful to point out there are two other witnesses. Besides these three supernatural signs which God himself gives, says, beginning in verse 54, when the centurion, that is the Roman soldier who crucified Christ, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 55, there were also many women there, Matthew tells us looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's bow and ask God to help us by his spirit, and then we'll jump in. Father, we just pray that as we gather together here on this special Sunday in which we commemorate and reflect on events which took place nearly 2,000 years ago, that it was on this day that you, our God, rose from the grave, conquering death, defeating the curse, and showing to all the world that you have taken away our sins, those who have hoped in you. And so, Father, as we gather here this Easter Sunday, I pray through your word, by your spirit, that you would help us to understand both the meaning of the atonement, the crucifixion, the atoning for the curse, the atoning for sin. We pray, Lord, you'd also show us 
that our lives are not spent looking backwards, but forwards until the day of resurrection. We pray, God, that you would instill that truth into our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was uh, attending a funeral of, of a dear friend in, uh, who, who had passed away. This is back when I was living in Austin, Texas. And we conducted the funeral, and uh, it was uh, being held at a... He was having a graveside service. It was being held at uh, a cemetery on the outskirts of the city of Austin. And uh, after the graveside service, I wasn't quite ready to, uh, to leave just yet, and there were a few of us that were gathered there. And uh, we were grieving the, the loss of this brother, and we decided to just sort of hike out for a short minute into what we thought was a farmer's field alongside of the cemetery. Uh, there was no fence or no barrier, but uh, it wasn't mowed. The grass was about knee-high, and so we started to hike out into this field just to get a little bit of a dis- distance from us and the rest of the mourners who were there. Um, just to reflect on the passing of our friend. And as we were walking through this knee-high grass, I tripped over a large rock. And as I picked myself up and dusted myself off, um, a number of us were kind of struck by this. And, of course, we're peeling back the grass to see what this rock was that I had tripped over. And we discovered that it was, in fact, a tombstone. And as we kind of explored around that field a little bit more, we found that, indeed, this was a part of the cemetery. It was a part of the cemetery in which there were hundreds of tombstones, but it wasn't maintained. The grass wasn't mowed, and if you didn't know it was there, you would never have known it was there. And as we stood there in that empty grassy field, we felt that there was something quite tragic. These dear people passed away so many years ago, and even their markers where they were laid to rest had been neglected and forgotten. The tombstone in particular that I tripped over belonged to a man by the name of Peter Clint, born 1861, died 1923, at the age of 62 years. As I looked at this tombstone, it was weathered from nearly 70 years of of rain and sunshine. There were two scriptures written on this particular tombstone. I had a hard time making them out because of the way that the tombstone had been weathered. But the first was from Isaiah 64. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And just beneath that scripture verse was another scripture verse. But as it is written, this by the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he's loosely quoting from the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 64, whereas the Isaiah passage says nobody has imagined what God has prepared for those who wait on him. Paul's interpretation is that no man has imagined or understood what God has prepared for those who love him. These two verses taken back to back, waiting upon the Lord, loving the Lord. We understand by the inspiration of Scripture that these are one and the same. Waiting on the Lord and loving the Lord. As we come together here on this Easter Sunday, we reflect on the fact that our God has loved us, that he has sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, living a life in the flesh, a sinless life, 
dying in our place upon the cross in order to bear the penalty of our sins. We look backwards at that and we see and we are able to proclaim with Christ, it is finished. Amen, church? Our sins have been paid once and for all. And yet I wonder now, how many of us can honestly say that the lives we live now are lives of waiting, waiting upon the Lord. We encounter here in Matthew chapter 27, one of the supernatural miracles that God performed in order to confirm the validity not only of the crucifixion, but also of the resurrection, one of the supernatural miracles that God performed was the raising of saints on the day of crucifixion who waited until the day of resurrection in their tombstones. And this is a powerful miracle. And it's one that's located nowhere else in any of the other Gospels. It's spoken of nowhere else in any of the rest of the New Testament. It's not referenced. It's not alluded to. The only account we have of this is from this particular Gospel, from Matthew's hand. And I want to just look at it with you this morning. Look with me. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Jesus has died. It's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It says he cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And beginning in verse 51, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Of course, this is the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the outer court. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept. And Twice a year at Passover and again at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he'd offer a couple of different sacrifices. First, he'd have to offer a sacrifice for himself, for his own sin, and then he would offer sacrifices for all the nation of Israel. And the significance of these sacrifices was in order to teach all the nation of Israel that apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Because sin, the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. When we sin against God, we offend a holy God. We offend a righteous God. And in the committing of sin, there is a punishment. And in order to communicate this punishment, in order to teach on the significance of this, the requirement of God for justice, they had these festivals, Yom Kippur. And yet when Christ dies at that very moment, Matthew tells us, that the veil which kept the Holy of Holies walled off, in a sense, from the rest of the temple, that indicated the special place where God's presence was known to dwell and was kept separate from everyone else, the veil that divided those two places was torn in half. The significance of it being not physical, wow, look at this, an awesome earthquake has taken place, and this thick veil, which some scholars suggest was as thick as four inches, this thing has been shredded from top to bottom. Wow, look at the power. That's not the significance of it. It is not purely a physical significance, although there is that. No, it's indicating a spiritual significance. Whereas God has now had to stay separate from man. By the blood of Christ, he is now able to be with his people. That's the first miracle, the first supernatural testimony that God gives. The second one, it says, the earth shook and the rocks were split. There is an earthquake that happens there at Jerusalem. 
And the timing of it is significant because it happens at the moment that Jesus passes. All along, this man has been claiming to be not merely a man, but divine. He's not just a guy from Nazareth. He's not just a guy with brothers and sisters born to Mary and Joseph. In fact, he isn't even Joseph's biological son. All along, he's been insisting, no, he is, in fact, the son of God. He is both the son of man, one of us, just like you, just like me, but also nothing like us. Not only is he a son of man, he is God's son. That is, he is deity. He has all of the attributes and all of the aspects of deity, such that when he dies, the timing of that is corroborated by an event that is so unique, so special, it is undeniable. The centurion even sees it and exclaims, behold, this was the son of God. The earthquake took place and everybody knows instinctively that as this earth is shaking and as the rocks are crumbling and splitting in half, this is a further indication that God who has power over nature is bearing witness through the destruction of the earth, breaking it up, that his son has died, that the crucifixion has happened and that atonement has been made. And then this third miracle, beginning in verse 52. The tombs were opened. It says the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Now, this account is recorded for us nowhere else. So we have no other passage by which to scrutinize this particular passage. We have no other narrative in any of the four Gospels to try and look at this and and to try and figure it out. But you know what? None of that matters. If God says something just one time, it is important for us to consider and to reflect on it. Many people don't know the God of the Bible because they don't know the Bible of God. If God speaks to us and if we would have a relationship with him, we have to listen to what he says. And so often today, what we find within so many churches is this drift away from the scriptures in which Christians are saying, I want to have a relationship with God, but I'm not too sure about all of the things he says here in this book. Now, when I speak to you, because I'm a man, I can be mistaken. I may have no intention of lying to you. I may have no desire to deceive you. And yet, despite my best efforts, I might relay information to you that is inaccurate, that is flawed. You may ask me, what do you think the weather is going to be like today? And I might reply to you, sunny. By God's grace, it is sunny today. But we may have a shower later in the day. Who knows? I could give you my best guess, and I could be wrong. Now, I could also willfully lie to you. I'm a sinful man. I could, for whatever reason, just think, hey, I'm just going to trick this guy and tell him it's raining and cold outside, and he'll bundle up, and then he'll walk outside with his coat on, and it's actually sunny and warm. Ha ha. I could be devious like that. Our words are a reflection of our person. Which means that as God speaks to us, his word is a reflection of his person. Whereas I can be flawed and make mistakes, if you consider God flawed and mistaken, then you might consider his word flawed and mistaken. But if you believe in a God who is perfect and holy, then you have to approach the scriptures from the viewpoint of inerrancy, infallibility. That is the understanding that what God says, he says perfectly. That what God speaks to us, he doesn't make mistakes. And so as we look at this particular text here, we're encountering a miracle that is really bizarre. And yet, 
as God speaks it to us through St. Matthew, we have to accept it at face value. Look with me now very carefully at verse 52. The third miracle that takes place, the tombs were opened. At the moment that Jesus dies, the earth shakes and tombs are opened. But notice this. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Again, if we're paying attention to the time signatures, these people come to life at the moment that Jesus dies. But now look at verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they appeared to many. Now we know Jesus dies about 3 p.m. on Friday. He comes out of the grave. He rises from the dead somewhere around daybreak, probably before dawn, but we have evidence of him being for sure alive at dawn Sunday. Now, knowing that, what Matthew is saying here is that about 3 p.m. on Friday, these people's tombs were opened and they were raised to life on Friday. And they stayed alive in their tombs until Sunday. And they waited until after Christ emerged from his tomb before they emerged from their tombs. Now, isn't that the coolest thing you've ever heard? I had never considered this before. It's not referenced anywhere in the Gospels. And yet, if we accept the scriptures as inerrant, as infallible, Matthew is intending to communicate something very special to us. What could this be? Now, we have to step back for a second. I want you to just step way back out of the text for a moment, and I want you to understand different authors have different purposes. Different writers of different books of the Bible, they have different audiences that they're writing to. For example, the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, later in the first century, written to an audience of both Gentiles and Jews, written to uh, push back against this idea of Gnosticism, this idea that being a Christian is only as important as what we know, that we can live our lives however we want as long as we know who Jesus is. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, you'll have him referencing who Jesus is, and there's all these I am statements. I am the Son of God. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the way of life. I am the truth and the way. Of the, and the way. He makes these statements, and along with that, There are also these miracle references. This, the first miracle that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. This, the second miracle that Jesus did. This, the third miracle. So that we see, knowing who Jesus is, through whom he declares himself to be, is tied to what Jesus does, things he performs in time, in space, in history, actual acts. Both are significant. And this is important to John because he's wanting to teach us that it isn't simply a matter of what we know, but also of how we live. Take the uh, writer Luke. Both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts written to this guy named Theophilus. It's a Gentile name. It's a Greek name. It's not Jewish. Most likely, being somewhat familiar with the travels of Luke and his companionship with the Apostle Paul, most likely Theophilus is a guy from Rome, a wealthy patron, somebody supporting their ministry. And in both accounts, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is writing to Theophilus in both places, in order to make him more fully understand the events surrounding the life of Christ. And then the book of Acts, to continue to share with Theophilus what Christ continues to do through the church. 
And we come to Matthew, say, okay, well, what's Matthew's deal? What's he all about? Matthew is the Jewish gospel. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And he's writing in order to convince and to persuade Jews that Jesus is the son of David. He is the long-promised, long-appointed Messiah. He is the chosen one. With that in mind, we need to understand there are two aspects going on here, and neither one can be dismissed. When Matthew tells us that they were raised on Friday but they didn't come out of the tombs on Sunday. This is a miracle which would have significance to the Jews. But what significance would it have? The the closest possible reference we have to this particular account comes from the book of Ezekiel. Don't flip there, just listen. This is from Ezekiel 37. God prophesying through the prophet Ezekiel to the house of Israel, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Indeed, we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, listen carefully, I will, number one, open your graves. Number two, and raise you from your graves. And number three, and I will then bring you into the land of Israel. Ezekiel gives us three things that are going to happen that God is going to do for his people Israel. Whenever salvation comes, Ezekiel isn't real clear on that, writing several hundred years obviously before the arrival of Christ, but whenever salvation comes, Three things are going to happen. And he enumerates them one by one. Number one, I will open your tombs. Number two, I will raise you back to life. And number three, I will bring you into Israel. Now, if you're a Jew and you've understood your whole life that whenever Messiah comes, he's going to do these three things. And then Jesus is crucified and all of these supernatural events happen. You're thinking, okay, maybe he was a good guy. Maybe God is really upset in heaven. But is he really the Savior? Is he really the one who can take away our sins? And what God is specifically trying to say to the house of Israel is, yes, in fact, he is because he fulfills this prophecy, which you're all well familiar with. It is happening here on the moment of his crucifixion, signifying the atonement and also signifying the resurrection. They are raised to life. Their tombs are opened the day of. And they wait for the resurrection. And when Christ comes forward, they also come forward. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Were these saints resurrected with eternal glorified bodies? I'm going to wager a guess here. And again, we can't be dogmatic because we don't have any more details. There's only what Matthew gives us here. But I'm going to suggest to you that the resurrection that took place here with these saints was similar to that of Lazarus recorded for us in the Gospel of John. They were, in fact, raised back to life 
but not in their eternal, resurrected, glorified bodies. The reason I suggest that is because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, don't flip there, Paul, writing to the church, writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica, says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has ascended in heaven, and we know that he's going to come back to us out of heaven. Concerning that event, he says, and concerning our being gathered together to him, that is, when all the saints are raised and gathered to Christ, he says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, Paul is writing many, many years after this event, and he is saying that the resurrection, he says three things here. He says, number one, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the resurrection of the saints. Number three, the day of the Lord. These are all three things that happen seemingly at the same time, and we know that the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. We know that Christ has not returned to the earth yet, which means that the resurrection, that is the ultimate resurrection of glorified bodies, happens around the time that those other two events happen, and he's saying none of that has happened yet. Don't be deceived. Don't think that it's already happened which means that what's happening here in Matthew chapter 27 is similar to what we find in the Gospel of John with Lazarus. These are not people who are raised with glorified bodies that are never to die again. These are not people that ascended into heaven with Christ. In the ascension at the end of Matthew and again in Acts chapter 1, there's no account of anybody else going up into the sky with Christ. So what we can conclude is that these people were raised back to life. They went into the city after Jesus emerges from the tomb, and they testified to the truth of Christ as the Messiah. Only at some later point in time to taste the sting of death once again. Now, you have to understand, these are people who are raised back from the dead, they're just like you and me. Their tombs are opened. They're sort of sitting there, peeking out, maybe, <laughs> looking at the countryside. And yet, by the authority of God, they're not permitted to emerge. Why is this? Two scriptures that I want to draw your attention to. Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. And again, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And it goes on from there. These saints have been raised back to life, but they will die again. Christ is the firstborn of the dead, the first to resurrect with his glorified eternal body. So it begs the question then, what is Matthew doing? Number one, he's trying to communicate to the Jews that prophecy is being fulfilled, that salvation is being given, that the curse is being removed, and that in the resurrection, new life is being empowered. I want to look at these things first, one by one. Number one, when Jesus dies on the cross, the crucifixion indicates to us that the curse is, has been removed. This is something that we don't really talk about quite a bit in Christianity. 
When we hear the word curse, we tend to think perhaps of a voodoo witch doctor that places pins in a doll made to resemble his enemies, and he's trying to torture his enemies, and so he's sticking this little doll. Or perhaps we think of an occultist who is involved with witchcraft or uh, perhaps putting spells or hexes upon people. You and I, we look at curses, and we think this is superstition and myth, and yet the reality is all of us are cursed right now. All of us are living under this curse. We are tasting of death. We go to funerals. Survey was conducted recently which indicated that at funerals, the number one most consumed food in North America is, believe it or not, potato salad. (laughs) Believe it or not, you and I, we're going to live, we are going to die, people are going to gather there at our funeral, they're going to say nice things about us, they're going to remember us, most likely they're going to eat potato salad. (laughs) And then, after a while, they'll put the food away, they'll pack the groceries back into the refrigerator, they'll exchange their goodbyes, they'll give hugs, they'll make their way out of the churchyard, out of the cemetery, they'll turn off the lights, and maybe not that day, and maybe not the next week, but sooner or later, you will be forgotten. Sooner or later, you will, if you're buried, end up with a tombstone in a yard overgrown with grass that no one bothers to mow, that no one visits, and that is only discovered if some young kids attending someone else's funeral happen to hike through that field and trip over it. When Jesus dies on the cross, the curse of death of which we all partake because we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The curse, this idea that we don't like to talk about, we think it's only real in backwards countries where they do things like witchcraft and voodoo. This curse, it is very real. And it is nothing like voodoo. It is nothing like witchcraft. It is far more damaging. It is all-encompassing every part of creation from here all the way around to Kandahar. The entire world has been so marked by our sin that it is broken. And Christ dying on the cross breaks that curse. This is where you should say amen. Amen. Because of Jesus dying on the cross, the sins of which we are guilty are now paid for in the Lord's eyes. We no longer need remain under the curse. In fact, anyone who turns to the Lord and asks for forgiveness can be forgiven of his sins. The second aspect that I want to consider with you briefly, the resurrection that takes place by Christ and these other saints on Sunday, it speaks to a new life that is empowered by God, a life that can begin right now and can transcend the grave. It begins right now and it extends into eternity when we are all raised from the grave. 
I read on Friday in the Vancouver, in a Vancouver News Journal a survey conducted amongst British Columbians in which it indicated that 67% of British Columbians claim to believe in a higher power or in God. 67%. That's more than two-thirds of us are claiming to believe in God. What it found, though, was that those individuals who claimed to have some faith in some higher power or some acknowledgement that there was a God that existed, only 4% of those individuals who claimed to believe or acknowledge that there is a God, only 4% participated in any spiritual service at all throughout the year. This includes those individuals who only go to church on Christmas and on Easter. This is 67% of British Columbians saying that, yes, there is a higher power who's in control, who has more power than me, who has the ability to make my life better, and yet I will only worship him. 4% of us once a year. Is that not just the most befuddled thinking you've ever heard of? Pause for a moment and reflect with me. To say you believe in a God who has the power to make your life better, you believe in him, but you're not going to worship him or seek his favor, is kind of like saying you believe in air, but you're not really interested in breathing. It's kind of like saying you believe in water, but you're not really interested in drinking. If there is a God that is out there, and two-thirds of British Columbians say that they think there is, then it begs the question, where is he? Why isn't he here? Why has he hidden himself away from us? What do we need to do to get closer to him? How do we get to know him? How do we please him so that he will actually intervene in our lives in order to make things better? Because we all agree, any survey, any poll that's conducted, and this actually gets quite pronounced during the political election cycle, we all believe that things are getting worse, not better. And so if we believe there's a God who can make things better, then why aren't we bothering to worship him? makes no sense. You might as well not believe in him at all. I mean, it's just as practical as saying you believe in air, but you're not going to inhale. You believe in water, but you'll never take a drink. My fear is that as Christians, for those of us who are possibly gathered here today, or for those of us who are joining us online, practically, this is how we live our lives. We live our lives looking at this text, coming to church on this particular Sunday, acknowledging, yes, that there is a God who loves us, but that knowledge does not actually impact us any other days of the year. It's rather fruitless. It's rather useless. These saints... I want you to pause and consider with me for a second. They had the opportunity to walk out on Friday. They had loved ones, just like you and I have loved ones. It's Friday. Start of the weekend, guys. We've just been brought back to life. Don't you want to go see your family? I bet you they did. And yet, they're going to stay there until Sunday at the command of God and by their own volition. Why do they do that? Why is it 
that they are able, though they undoubtedly have loved ones, though they have friends, neighbors, that they want to see? Why is it that they do not immediately rush out? Why is it that they prefer to stay in their tombs until Christ emerges? And Scripture answers, because they seek to be identified with Christ. And further, the life that they're going to live is a life that will be empowered by his resurrection. You and I, as Christians, we have a tendency to live always looking backwards. We tend to think that it only matters what we know, a historical fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. We just look backwards in time. We look back to somewhere around 30 AD. We see these events that took place. Yes, we know Jesus was the Son of God. Yes, he was sinless. Yes, he took our sins upon himself. Yes, he died on the cross and he made atonement. That's all that matters, just the fact that we know that. But these guys knew that. And they had a powerful reason to jump up and run out of their tombs, and yet they didn't. And the only reason I can offer for it is that they understood the significance of what they were being called to do by God. And though there would have been nothing greater than them to go out and see their families, they said there is, in fact, one thing that is greater, and that is bearing witness to a resurrection, not just our own, but a resurrection which is meant to be claimed for all people. See, they were looking forward to Sunday. And they were controlling themselves and waiting until Sunday. They were waiting to emerge on Sunday rather than looking at what had happened on Friday and saying, yeah, now we're free to go. They were waiting till Sunday in order that their loved ones would know that death had been defeated not just temporarily, but forever. And we weren't just free of death. But now we've been given the gift of life. How to truly live. Which means that when we come to church and we worship Christ, especially on Easter, we understand that it isn't about what has happened. It is about what has happened and what is happening. It is about what Christ has done, what he is continuing to do, and what he promises to do when he returns. All of us, we cannot reflect on these events of Easter properly unless we are prepared to live accordingly. When we look at this text, we cannot live the Christian life based on gratitude alone. We are to be grateful for what God has done, but we must also have faith in what he has yet to do and promises to do. We move forward in obedience, living every day of our lives by the promises of Scripture, believing that as God has given us grace in the past, He gives us grace today and tomorrow. And all of this is to be fulfilled by the ultimate grace of the resurrected body, which he has promised to those who love him. 
we reflect on these texts, Isaiah and 1 Corinthians. Loving God, waiting on God. Is your life lived day by day, waiting for the coming of the Lord? As we look at these saints as well in Matthew chapter 27, I just have to ask the question. Were these like really famous saints? I mean, is this, is this like Moses and David? I mean, are these like rock star saints? Or are these just your regular Joe Schmo saints? We don't know. As we look at the text, we also want to ask the question, how many saints are there? Are there five, 50, 500, 5,000? Again, the text doesn't tell us. We don't know. We want to know, did these saints die immediately after? I mean, did they go on to live for another 20, 30, 40 years? Again, the text doesn't tell us. We don't know. And what we need to take away is that the text doesn't tell us these details because in the silence regarding these details, it is pointing to the one detail which matters the most. Jesus Christ died for our sins on Friday. And he raised from the dead on Sunday for our life. We are forgiven of our sins based on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we are given the gift of new life, a life that transcends the grave based on what he does on Sunday coming out of the grave. We don't need to know any of these details because all of these details are irrelevant compared to the one poignant truth. These men, whoever they are, or women, whoever they are, they bear witness to Christ. And it also changes the ending of the story for you and me. Some of us come from abusive homes Some of us have known nothing but success and happiness. Some of us have great stories. Some of us have tragic stories. All of us have known at some point in time the bitter disappointments of life. And understanding that as we go through life, we have limited opportunities for happiness. We are tempted based on our own wisdom to do those things which we think will make us the most happy. But we see here in Christ and what he has done for us. That he humbled himself and he became a servant to serve you and me. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame, the shame of the cross. He scorned its shame. The joy that was set before him to rescue sinners like you and me. It reminds me of an event that took place in England in 1551. At the entrance to Oxford University in England is located what is known as the Martyr's Monument. It's dedicated to Archbishop Cranmer and to Bishop Latimer and to a fellow who went by the name of Master Ridley. It was during the Reformation And they felt an overwhelming call to proclaim, to testify, to give witness to what God had done in their lives, saving them by faith alone, through Christ alone. 
they felt an overwhelming conviction to say that there is no priest, there is no bishop, there is no pastor that controls salvation, that Christ himself is our only mediator, and that he saves whomever comes to him in repentance, seeking forgiveness. That was a dangerous message to be preaching at that time in England. But they felt that it was more joyful to save those around them. And so they preached on despite the dangers. And sure enough, they were arrested, they were tried for heresy, and they were convicted. And they were sentenced to to be executed by burning. When the flames were rising at the stake, Master Ridley began to cry in pain as he began to burn. Bishop Latimer, who was tied back to back to him, he was on the other side of the stake. He turned and he said, famous words inscribed, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Have joy, this is what he's saying. By God's grace, we shall light today a fire in England which shall never go out. In my reading, I stumbled across the bill. It was sent by the executioners to the crown, the bill for this execution. It cost uh, five shilling, 25 shillings and eight pence, which uh, I did the math. It's a little less than $5. I thought, how cheap of an execution is that? It didn't even cost $5. It's just one of those little facts of history that you just can't quite ignore. So little was the regard that others had for these men that they thought it a sufficient means of putting them to death simply by burning them with some firewood and kindling. And yet, they were precious in God's eyes. And he was correct, Bishop Latimer. From that execution, revival swept across England. From that execution, the gospel was proclaimed. From that execution, God's spirit began to work and to draw men and women to himself. The sun may go out in the sky. The lights of the world may eventually turn to darkness. The tides of the sea may cease to ebb and flow. The stars may grow old and dim, and nature itself may fall apart on the shifting tides of time. But know this. Christ cannot be dead. Whatever else may happen, Jesus has been raised. He is reigning in heaven. And he has promised for all those who love him, who wait upon him, he is coming in glory. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that his crucifixion removes the curse. It satisfies the penalty. It fulfills justice. It sets us free. And Lord, we also thank you on this Easter Sunday, nearly 2,000 years ago, you raised to new life proving that you have the power to grant life to all those who hope in you. Not only are we set free, we are promised eternity. Father, I pray that as we reflect on these truths, 
that you would use your word this morning by your spirit to draw us closer to you. If there are any here today, Lord, who do not know you, we pray, God, that you would open their eyes to see, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would grant them faith and repentance to believe in the gospel of your son. We pray, Lord, that you would bring salvation today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.